Good morning, my friends. Welcome to Grace Reform Baptist Church. Just some announcements. Today we have a fellowship luncheon right after the service. Everybody is welcome, even if you didn't bring anything. Come over and I encourage you to sit with somebody that you don't really know and get to know them. They're brothers and sisters. After lunch, the youth choir will be practicing in the cottage. And while that's going on, we will be showing the next segment of the Tim Challies DVD in the fellowship hall because the sanctuary is going to be used for something else. The youth choir is going to meet today after church and also next week after church. Next week is Palm Sunday, then Easter Sunday, and on Easter Sunday, moms and dads, we will not have Sunday school for children or adults, but we will be gathering at 1030 here for a special pre-service if you can make it. We don't know what it is yet, but we're going to gather. Our scripture reading this morning is from Mark chapter 5 and verse 21. Jesus heals a woman and Jairus' daughter. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live and he went with them and a great crowd gathered following him and thronged about him there was a woman who had just discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment for she said if I even touch his garments I'll be made well and immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out of him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garment? And his disciples said to him, You see this crowd pressing about you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down beside him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, Your faith has made you go go in peace and be healed of your disease. And while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they had said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. And they put aside, and they put them all outside. And he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went into where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Tabitha Kumi, which means, Little girl, I say unto you, Arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them 
that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we're thankful for these examples we see of Christ who has power over all illness, all disease, Lord. He's the great healer, the great physician. Father, we just pray that you would take these words from this lesson and give us wisdom through it, through the Spirit, and apply it to our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jerry, for the reading from the life of Christ, and I hope you have been enjoying that as we've been going through it from time to time. I have a special document for you. I think we put it in your worship folder. It's the scripture guide to the Holy Week, and if not, there's some in the back, but I think they're in your bulletins this morning. Uh, I've been using this for a number of years, but there are some new folks here, so I wanted you to consider um, this document to help guide for the next two weeks. Uh, By God's providence, I've come to a stopping place here in Uh, The book of Hebrews, I'm going to finish up, Lord willing, today, chapter 6, and then move on to chapter 7 in dealing with Melchizedek. I thought for the next two weeks, since it's Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, we often call that Resurrection Sunday, that we would have a special uh, sermon series on that Holy Week. To guide you along, this uh, selection that I've printed out here, and I really enjoyed from This is from The Final Days of Jesus by Andreas Kostenberger. It's a good resource, but I pulled out, summarized this particular guide leading up to the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. If you look on this guide, you know, it, it, it begins really on what we would call Palm Sunday, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem and he's treated as a king. It will be the end of the week in which he is treated as a criminal. And we know the rest of the story, but this is a guide for each day. I would challenge you and call you to at least consider looking at this guide each day of the next two weeks. If you want to, you can read some of the scripture passages that are associated with it. And I think it might help to prepare you for really this momentous event in which we commemorate every year the very resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus doesn't raise from the dead, your, your faith is vain. And so it's a very important moment. When I think about it, though, all of Christ's life is incredibly important uh, from the before time even began when he spoke the worlds into existence to the time of his incarnation that we remember at Christmas time, to his life as we've been reading along through the Gospels and, and his ministry and how he engaged. But ultimately, atoning for our sin through his death, truly being buried, accomplishing what needed to be done, and triumphantly raising from the dead, ultimately ascending on high to the throne of the majesty on high where he is indeed now, sovereign king, sovereign ruler, and as we'll look in the book of Hebrews in just a bit, 
where he is continually mediating on our behalf even right now after the order of Melchizedek. So let's look to Christ this morning and to prepare our hearts. I want to give you a moment privately to confess your sin, to ask for the illumination of the Holy Spirit, that you might be able to hear what Christ would have for you this day, what this mediator between God and man would mediate on your behalf this day. So I'll give you a moment privately where you're at to pray, and then I'll pray for us corporately. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we have gathered together as your people to worship your holy name. You indeed are grand and glorious beyond our imagination. A good God who would reach down, send a son to humble himself, to live among us, to fulfill all righteousness, to earn that merit which is required to stand before you in absolute perfection, and beyond that, to atone for our sin for every one. What an incredible power it is indeed that you have put on display and even in the life of Christ demonstrating the ability to say to someone, arise. And immediately they get up and, and rise. I'm thankful for the power of, of the gospel it's the power to salvation, which we have received, and I pray indeed that we would truly arise and walk in newness of life. Give us great conviction to be courageous in walking in this newness of life. I pray, Father, that we would continually confess our sins. And recognize that you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from un all unrighteousness. For those things that distract us and dissuade us, I, Father, I pray our hope would be even more tightly fixed on Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our salvation. I pray that you would continually conform us into the image of, our, of your Son. I pray that we would exemplify those perfections of his life in ours, not through the flesh, but through the power of the Spirit. I pray that you'd be glorified today, uplifted and exalted, and may we bring many others to come to look and live. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew 5 reads, blessed are the gentle because they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful because they will be shown mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart because they will see God. Let's all stand together and take our hymn books and turn to number 578. And we'll sing, rejoice ye pure in heart, rejoice, give thanks, and sing. 578.
211. Because no one can lay any other foundation that was that what has been laid, that is Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 311. 511, the solid rock. church. I have the privilege this morning of reading with you and for you um, as we work through the book of Acts. We'll be in Acts chapter 5 this morning. I'll be reading from the Pew Bible. uh, Acts chapter 5 verses 1 through 16 can be found in their entirety on page 913. We have come to a uh, story in the, the book of Acts, again, which is our uh, account of the uh, formation and, and uh, early days of uh, the early church. And uh, we come to a story of Ananias and Sapphira, which I hope to not uh, mispronounce those too many times. It's a well-known story, and I'd uh, ask you to read along with me, if you will. Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, and to keep back for yourself 
part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And, he, and she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out carried out the sick into the streets and laid hands on the cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Pray with me, church. Father, we praise you this morning for the true gift that is your word, your revelation to us of the truths of history past, of the truths that we have learned of Christ and his great work and the apostles and their founding of the church. And, and Father, I just pray that as we continue through the book of Acts that, uh, that we'll see your glory ultimately and that we'll see the glory of, uh, of your son and uh, when we read of stories of, uh, of great wonder when we um, see and read of, of signs, of, of miracles, that uh, we would be in awe of your power. And Father, I pray this morning uh, that you would bless the, uh, the preaching and teaching of your word and that you would uh, um, aid all of us in being attentive, um, expository listeners, Father, that we would see uh, and seek to understand the word that you've given it, uh, to us, and we would um, uh, seek for ways in which we can apply it to our lives day in and day out, that we would continue to seek to glorify you with our lives. It's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Amen.
Amber. Please take your hymn books and stand and turn to 257. Wanted as we move into the Easter season and we're a couple weeks away from Good Friday, want to introduce the the congregation to Cross of Jesus, Cross of Sorrow. Beautiful doctrine taught here in this hymn and uh, just gives you a good picture of the heaviness of that time. Um, we'll have the Amber play through it nice and slow. We'll go through this slowly, but um, beautiful hymn, beautiful words, and uh, Cross of Jesus, Cross of Sorrow. to number 446. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. 446.
Thank you, church. It's just a joy to hear you sing and praises to the Lord and worshiping Him and being able to join you in that. It is a great pleasure. I enjoy singing praises to God and singing those, of course, with His people. So, mentioned earlier today, I'd like to complete this chapter 6 in Hebrews if I can. So, I invite you to turn there in our text, Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to finish on a high note in verse 19 and 20. And I thought of how to title this message. I simply call it Strong Encouragement. Seeing that hymn reminds me of the strong encouragement we have. Certainly, blessed assurance in Jesus Christ. And we'd like for you to have that deep assurance in Jesus Christ. Thus far, if you've been reading through the preaching here of Hebrews, you get a sense of this tone of his frequent warnings in this exposition. You feel the weight of the subject. It's Jesus. The passion for Christ's glory. And he doesn't want the people, his congregation, mostly Jews there, to drift away, to to leave Jesus for something symbolically of him. Don't leave, leave the substance of who Jesus is. He doesn't want them to, to miss out on the excellency of Jesus Christ. He would Explain Jesus this way in the opening chapters, you remember? He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. And beyond that, after making purification for our sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's who Jesus is. Do you know him? Do you see him? Do you behold his excellency, his glory? Jesus is not just another prophet as important as prophets might be. He is the prophet. He is not just another priest. Priests were helpful but he is the high priest. And he's not just another king, as valuable as that might be. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And so the call then to God's people is to focus on Jesus Christ, 
these glorious thoughts about who Jesus actually is will bring about great passion in your heart as well. The preacher's concern is that his congregation really might miss out. They might miss out on something great, grand, and glorious. They might drift away, as he would say, from that. So he calls the church to pay closer attention, to draw your focus on Christ. Because how are you going to escape if you neglect so great a salvation? Chapter 2. I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis' great way he worded this expression of Jesus Christ in his book entitled The Weight of Glory, a very provoking way. He said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. That's what you're going to see in this preaching of Hebrews, the infinite glory and joy of a person. It is Jesus Christ. Lewis will go on in his famous quote, like describing us like ignorant children, who want to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. That is the promise that is in Jesus Christ. And he will say, we are far too easily pleased. I think it's well said. He cuts to the core of it. Too easily satisfied. Those who might walk away from faith fail to realize the riches which they so easily discard for a bowl of beans like Esau to satisfy a temporary desire for that which is eternal, an eternal weight of glory. So the preacher warns, and he warns again and again. And in chapter 3, he says, Take care, brothers. He's speaking to God's people. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Examine yourself, as he says. That it might lead you away from the living God, that is the only God who exists. And then we get to chapter 6, where he stops once again to pause. And again, it's hard preaching, I know. He's warning of apostasy. But he's warning with great passion, because you don't recognize what you're really giving up and what you're walking away from if you turn from Christ. I can imagine him seeing people in his own congregation, as I have who walk away from Christ, they don't know what they're walking away from. 
And he reminds them how dangerous this might be. In chapter 6 and verse 4, he says, It is impossible in the case of those who have been once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted of the goodness of the word of God and the powers to come, and then have fallen away. In other words, they have been there. They have done that. They have been part of it. They were part of the prayers, part of the singing. They, they knew the content of the gospel. And to apostatize, to, to fall away from that, there can come a time in which it's possible to restore them again unto repentance. Because they would otherwise be crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. This preaching has been laced with heavy warnings of admonishment. He has challenged the people, rightfully so, this is a dangerous thing. We felt the weight of those concerns, and at this point he, he may recognize that some of the people may feel, well, a little weighed down. But he doesn't want to end that way. He wants to lift them up. He wants to provide some relief. The, re the only relief where it really comes, and that is calling people to look to Jesus Christ. In chapter 6, if you notice in verse 9, here's, here's almost a reprieve. Do you feel that in his congregation? He's preaching and telling them, don't drift away. Don't be dull of hearing. Be careful. It's going to be impossible to bring you back. And then he says that we speak in this way. Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. It, it's a challenge. But then to the heart, to examine your own heart. If you're in Christ, you're the beloved. And be, based on that, loved of Christ, there are better things, things that belong to salvation. It's demonstrated in the fact that you actually care and desire to heed the warnings that are given. That's one way you would know. God's not an unjust person, verse 10. He won't overlook those things that you, you do, that are produced by the power of the Spirit, the love that you have shown for his name, and serving the saints as an example, as you still do. This comes from a love of Christ, why we love one another and serve and submit to one another. But he goes on and say, verse 11, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have, note this, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. That's what he wants them to have. And so it becomes really a letter of strong encouragement at this point because his desire is for you to be fully assured of your faith in Jesus Christ and to hang on to that to the very end. Never give it up. To persevere, if you will. That you wouldn't be sluggish or lazy. Instead, every one of you then would be imitators of those who have gone before. Read Hebrews chapter 11. He'll get to that. They have faith and patience, that is, they really believe. They truly believe, but they're patiently waiting for God to accomplish his purposes in your life and this world in which we live. 
may be very much a struggle along the way, but you have strong encouragement of the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. Well, how will they be fully assured? He's given them warnings, but where would this assurance come from? Well, there's a reminder of God's promises, as we detailed last week. It is accomplished through Jesus Christ our Lord. Though you might find yourself hopeless, inadequate at a task, perhaps you felt at times that, I wonder if I'm going to endure to the end. I wonder if I'll finish well. The call is to look to Jesus Christ. He finished, and he finished well. And all of those who have faith in him will also finish well. And that's a strong encouragement, really wrapped up in verse 19 and 20, as we'll review this morning. But to give it in its full context, we'll just pick up at verse 13, since we're walking through this chapter as a reminder. He makes his promise to Abraham. He says in verse 13, since he had no one greater to whom he swore, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And, and thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to refuge might have strong encouragement. There it is. Strong encouragement. That's what he wants. The end on that note. Strong encouragement to what? To hold fast to the hope set before us. Why, why would we do this? Well, because we have, verse 19, this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. I hope you caught that. In, I think it's the second line in, on Christ the solid rock I stand. It uses that same phraseology. We'll unpack that. He gone in the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we do pray that you will give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to respond. We, we have come to hear your word. And so I pray this exposition of it indeed will not fall on deaf and ears and blind eyes and hearts of stone, but may we, through the power of the Spirit, hear what Christ would say to his church, to each of us this day. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now last week, if you remember, we elaborated on this promise that's talked about in verse 13 and following. This promise that God made that said, surely I will do this, I will bless this. God has promised to accomplish this. 
and he can because he's God. We noted that this is all going to be, as he had planned from the very beginning, to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It is through Jesus Christ which Abraham points towards, which through his offspring that the nations, if you will, will be blessed. And God said it, and that's enough. That should settle it. But God is a very gracious and good God, and beyond that, he seals it, he says, with an oath. And I argued, I think, that oath is the sealing of the Holy Spirit, particularly in the life of the believer. He will not let you go. Every Christian is indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit. This is a mysterious way to think of it, I understand, but that's what his word declares. When Jesus says, I'm with you to the end of the age, he actually means it. When we say at Christmas time, Emmanuel, God with us, he really is with his people. God has sealed his people with an oath, the pledge, the promise, the Holy Spirit. The strong waves of false ideology perhaps disastrous events in real-world circumstances, maybe just temporal losses, whatever you might be going through, disease, difficulty. Those things can distract us from that which is certain, from that which is perfect, from that which is never failing. It is Jesus Christ. And we can never say enough, of that. And the call is to be strong in the Lord, to look to Him. So the preacher then culminates this, I hope you've noticed in verses 19 and 20, at least three aspects, three different ways to think about Jesus Christ, which will prove, by the way, to be a great strong encouragement for us to hold fast to the hope set before us. Teach us to yourself. Teach us to your children. Teach us to anyone who has ears to hear. What's our strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us? It is Jesus who is an anchor for the soul, a forerunner on our behalf. And our high priests forever, forever, mediating for our souls. Look at verse 19. There's the phrase. We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Here the preacher obviously is using a nautical illustration, an analogy, something this would have been very familiar for these people, familiar for us enough. We know what an anchor is. But in that culture, many were very uneasy concerning the sea, particularly the Sea of Galilee. It was a big sea in that area. It was characterized by 
frequent storms. They didn't have, you know, warning devices, GPS, that kind of stuff to keep up with. They might be out in the middle of it, and then all of a sudden the storm appears without warning. As we're reading through our life of Christ, you're going to see that more than once. Winds and waves that come upon those that are sailing out at the sea. You also hear in our reading through the gospel what Jesus did about it. He just speaks, and the winds and the waves obey his voice. He is, after all, the sovereign God. He demonstrates his sovereign power and control over even the weather. What ensues is peace. A great comfort in the physical world, for sure, and those that experience that kind of calamity. But how about the immaterial world? For us individually, we may refer to the immaterial parts of our being as the soul, the mind, or the human spirit. It's really that complex, immaterial part of man that may be still at unrest, even though there's no physical warrant for it. We're afraid of a condition that might arise. We might call that anxiety. We're concerned about what could happen, might happen. Maybe we feel guilty about what did happen, what we did or didn't do. Maybe just the great anguish at various moments that we have to encounter in life, certain elements of pain and suffering that we would rather avoid. Using this analogy of an anchor, a weight, you get the picture. It, it, it would secure a vessel to prevent it from just drifting away, to being overcome by the winds and the waves. Our text, this metaphorical anchor, if you will, Jesus Christ, note the text, it says, it gives a description of it here. It says that it is sure and steadfast. Two words mentioned there. The point is to, to make sure you know that there is no possibility of failure. I mean, everything else we know and experience in this life has a possibility of failure, doesn't it? It, it will at some point. But not this anchor, not this anchor for the soul. Perhaps you can imagine some great and big storm that is too big for whatever resources that you have, whatever anchor that you might have. No, this one is sure and steadfast. It is immovable. If you're in the hands of Jesus Christ, beloved, he is the one who is sure and steadfast. And don't take my word for it, take his. I'll read it for you. From John chapter 10, in verse 28, he's talking about his beloved. He says, I give them eternal life. This is, this is the God of all creation. 
This is the God who sustains everything by the word of his power. This is a God who can speak and the winds and the waves obey his voice. You don't know anyone else like that. This is God saying, I give unto them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Beloved, that's how you have eternal security. It doesn't depend on your degree of faith. It depends on his. Because he's made a promise. And he sealed that promise with an oath. And it's impossible for him to lie. Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you feel a little bit more secure? Do you recognize why he would be the anchor of your soul? It's a sure and steadfast bond that can never be broken. And just so you, you can capture a greater aspect of it, he says, well, it's my father who gave them to me. That, that's how you come to Christ anyway. It, it, the imagery is a, is a gift from the heavenly father to the son. A love gift, if you will. A bride, we use those terminologies just to help us try to recognize this relationship. And the father's greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and my father are one. No division. They're one God. Jesus is indeed then an anchor for our soul. In addition to the certainty, the sure and steadfast aspects of the anchor for which you can be certain that it holds, I think this analogy of this anchor reminds us that like an anchor that is cast into the sea, it's not visible from the surface. It, it may not appear visible. It settles to the bottom. It roots itself into a stable position, solid rock, if you will. You can't see it. Likewise, this hope, the anchor, it goes into, if you're in our text in Hebrews, where is this anchor? Where is this hope? The inner place behind the curtain. Where is that? You'll find later on through Hebrews, this is heaven. This is what all this symbolic aspects of Judaism was pointing to. To the actual reality. This beyond the curtain brings to remembrance, particularly to these Jews who knew of a majestic tabernacle and a temple that had concentric rooms. And the most inner room was called the holy place or the most holy or the holy of holies. It was in that inner room 
under the old covenant that a high priest would come yearly to make a sacrifice with blood. Just the priest and just the blood. It pointed to a day in which a sacrifice would be made in a inner room, if you will. In fact, here I invite you to flip over a couple of chapters in chapter 9, verse 24, so you can see it's explained a little bit there. I'll drop down to verse 24. And picking up on the same analogy, see the connection. For Christ, I'm in 9.24 of Hebrews. For Christ has entered not into a holy place made with hands. Where's that? That's the temple tabernacle, right? The physical, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God, note this, on our behalf. Beyond that, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters in the holy place every year with blood that wasn't his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's where the anchor is rooted in the inner room, sure and steadfast, certain, a single sacrifice once for all. It would remind us that as appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. And so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to those but to save those who eagerly are waiting for him. That's hope, isn't it? That's the hope we have. It's the hope we pray for. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Not to be distracted by all your temporal things that go on, as, as difficult and dark as they might be. I understand that. But the call is to look to Christ. Know that you have an anchor for your soul rooted there, steadfast and sure, on the very throne of God. Do you remember how he began in chapter 1? I already read it. Verse 3, after making purification for our sin, that's the same imagery there. What did Jesus Christ do? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Imagine your connection then with God. An anchor for your soul, not something cast deep into the water below, but into the very throne room of God in heaven above. That's an anchor for your soul. W.C. Martin wrote a hymn, I, I remembered my anchor, and we don't have, we have some allusions to it, as I mentioned in our hymn book. We don't have, I don't think we have this hymn, though. I looked for it, didn't see it, but perhaps you've heard it. I'll just read a line or two. This is from the 1800s. Though the angry surges roll on my tempest-driven soul, I am peaceful, for I know, wildly though the winds may blow, I've an anchor safe and 
that can never, ever not endure. And it holds, my anchor holds, blow your wildest gale on my bark so small and frail. By his grace I shall not fail, for my anchor holds, my anchor holds, and I hope your anchor holds. Paul would provide strong encouragement to the church at Rome. And I'll just read it for you. You listen. Chapter 8 in Romans. What do we say for these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, everybody. But who can be successfully against us? He who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who is going to bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. All of these concepts will be explained here in the idea that Jesus is an anchor, a forerunner, and a priest, by the way. I hope you see the connection. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, then? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, nakedness, or danger, or sword? This is written. For we are being killed all day long. We regard it as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are actually more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that's strong encouragement, isn't it? In Christ, you have an anchor for your soul. Back to our text in verse 20 of chapter 6. Beyond that, that would be sufficient. He wants to provide a, another aspect of Christ to remind us about him. In verse 20, where he says, note here, Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. All of that is key. Forerunner on our behalf. So he's an anchor for our soul, and he's a forerunner on our behalf. Now, I looked this word up in the lexicon. That's a multilingual dictionary, Greek and English in this case. And the writers here in this dictionary, and I think they're right here, Said we need to be careful in 620 here. It's important to avoid the expression which would simply suggest Jesus simply ran on ahead. The idea of a forerunner. I don't know what comes to your mind. It's more than that. It is that, but it's more than that. In this type of context, it is that of a precursor. That is to say, one who has gone on ahead in order to, here's it, show the way, or pioneer on the behalf of someone else. 
So you can render it this way. Jesus went on ahead of us in there for our benefit. And that's how you have to think about Jesus Christ. To go on our behalf. To, to, to come, to descend to earth. To live among us. To experience all of those kinds of evil that we might have to experience in life. Persecution, distress, danger. Hebrews 4.15, if you remember, we've been through that. He's, we, speaking of Jesus, our mediator, high priest, we don't have one who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. That is, he didn't fail. All of us at some point, whether we like to admit it or not, fail. We will break. He didn't bend or break. And so he experienced the full weight. The preacher in Hebrews will talk about our sanctification, say, well, you, you, you haven't struggled to blood. In other words, we give in. Jesus Christ never did. So he recognized the full weight of whatever you're going through, in a sense here, is a forerunner on your behalf. Now, others may not know what you're experiencing. Others may not have walked in your shoes. But here, the omniscient God not only knows about it, but here there's an experiential aspect in which Jesus Christ suffers. And he knows it in that way. He lives a life of sacrifice. He lives a life of submission, selflessness, and service. He lives a life in submission to the Father, John 8, 28. He doesn't do things just on his own authority, it says, but I speak as the Father taught me. And submission can be a hard thing for us to submit to one another in ways that we're supposed to according to our various relationships. He demonstrates that as a forerunner on our behalf. He does so in, in great humility as a servant. In Matthew chapter 20, he calls his disciples around him and says, you know, all these other Gentiles, pagans, if you will, they like to show their power and their totalitarian rule. In our day, we can think of our own government, but that's a aside. He said, it, it shouldn't be that way among you. Whoever's going to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. For as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and give his life a ransom for many. That's a forerunner. He demonstrates that in his life on our behalf. He provides an example experientially in, in real time, in real life. Turn to John chapter 13, keep your finger here we'll be right back but just to give you an example 
of this, of this concept of Jesus as our forerunner, John chapter 13, a pioneer, if you will, on our behalf to provide an example. Here's God incarnate. He's gathering around in the room, upper room with the disciples. And in their day, it would have been a common practice to have a servant or a slave to wash feet. So they kind of got dirty, dusty roads. But apparently, they didn't have anybody to do that. And neither did they feel like doing this for one another. <laughs> so everybody's sitting around with dirty feet. And that violates the etiquette of the day. So what's Jesus do? Remember, we've already talked about who he is, God incarnate, taking on human flesh. He gets down and washes all of their feet. Let's just drop down to verse 12 in chapter 13. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am. Now, Here's the forerunner. Here's the exemplar that Jesus Christ gives to them. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. This wasn't setting up an ordinance of foot washing, you understand. It, it, it's, it's much, that's, that's too trivial. It's much beyond that. The idea is to, to truly serve one another, to truly think of others as better than themselves. Who is Christ but the Lord of glory? He is their teacher, and this is what he's teaching them by example. He says, verse 15, I've given you an example that you should, that you should do just as I have done. And then here's this truly, truly, amen, amen, verily, verily, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus Christ functions as a forerunner, an exemplar, if you will. You're not blessed because you do them. You're demonstrating that you are of the beloved. You are of the blessed one. You are of Christ because this is the expression of your heart. You catch yourself wanting to do this. Even menial tasks, not because menial tasks are fun, they're not. But because there's something different about your heart. Christ has given us an example and I think Peter was thinking about this very event when he records in 1 Peter 2.21. For this is you have been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you might follow in his steps. Look to Christ. And this is why we read about Christ. We, we call you to follow him, to look to him. Here's how the preacher of Hebrews will 
finish out this thought in chapter 12. I'll read it for you. Therefore, since we're surrounded then by such a great a cloud of witnesses, these are those of the, of the chapter in faith that preceded in, verse, in chapter 11, who by faith and patience look to that hope of Christ, that, but, that, but then let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so easily and let us then run with endurance the, rate that is, the race that is set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's who Jesus is. And in those aspects, in that aspect, he functions there as a forerunner. One who, as A.W. Pink would say, has already traversed every step of the race which is set before us. And has then entered into possession of that which he ran. Right? We're still running. Christ is already there. He's finished. He's the author and he's the finisher. And so you look to him. John Owen gives a summary of this concept of Jesus as forerunner. I'll just mention it briefly to you. He looks at it as three ways that he points out. One is simply by Jesus as a forerunner, simply by way of declaration. He carries tidings to declare what successes has been obtained. So when the Lord Christ entered heaven, he made an open declaration of his victory by spoiling principalities and leading captivity captive as a forerunner. Second, by way of preparation. This he did by opening the way for our prayers and our worship and making a ready place for us. See John chapter 14. And third, by occupation. He has gone into heaven in our name to take possession and reserve it for us. Owen would go on to say, even heaven would be no safe, safe place for us to fix the anchor of our trust and hope in if Christ were not there. That's who we're looking for. Christ, this forerunner who made the declaration, preparation, and is currently there as an anchor for our soul. The third aspect to think about Christ is really woven throughout the text here in Hebrews more so, as I mentioned before, than any other passage in the Bible, any other book of the Bible, should I say, and passages. Quite at length, speaking of this particular aspect of Jesus Christ, by which you can have strong encouragement, and that is that Jesus Christ is indeed the mediator for our souls. Back to Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 20, the last part. He says, then Jesus, accomplishing all, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
The preacher is now ready to return where he had departed and got into this section in chapter 6. If you remember where we left off in chapter 5 and verse 9, speaking about Jesus being made perfect, that is, accomplishing it. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him and being then designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And he begins to warn and chide the church because he's afraid they they won't get what's going on here, the significance of it. And then he'll resume it in chapter 7 and give an exposition of Christ and his mediatorial work as portrayed by Melchizedek. He lays this foundation of warning and, and then encouragement. He's going to continue to compare and contrast the old covenant with the new. It's much better in Christ. So this statement here in verse 20, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, It really functions as um, a transition, but also a reminder of the thematic superiority of Jesus Christ throughout this book, and specifically in the next few chapters. He's now ready to serve the solid food, as he describes in verse 11 of chapter 5. He said, this is hard to explain. Because you have become dull of hearing. That is, you haven't put forth effort. It takes effort. You become dull of hearing. You become lazy. You're not willing to put in the the effort and the work to mature in your faith. He says, this time you ought to be teachers. You need somebody to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. You get the imagery. You're just a baby. You need to begin to chew. Everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And that's what the church is called to do. This training by constant practice means a lot of effort, a lot of work. Time spent. Maybe a little less movie time. Maybe a little less entertainment. Entertainment, great. Helps you out temporally. This, by engaging to have your Constant practice, trained, would not only help you in this life, but in the life to come. He's going to give this profound exposition here on Jesus in his mediatorial sense. And he introduces it by saying he is after the order of Melchizedek. And we'll get into that length in days to come. But let me just give you a taste so that you can then have your appetites wet to be able to prepare to to chew. Melchizedek, Melech, Zadik, 
In Hebrew, those two words, it means king, king of righteousness. Melchizedek was a real person in the Old Testament, a priestly king, which is unique because in the Levitical system, Aaron and that priesthood, they weren't kings. Those were two separate offices. And here you have Melchizedek, who is a priestly king. He says he's of Salem, that is, of peace. Priestly king of peace. We don't have to stretch very far for you to get the imagery, do you? He's symbolic and points to Jesus Christ. Jesus stands apart not only because of the uniqueness of his office and the accomplishments of his work and time, but because of his mediatorial aspect forever, as our text would say. This is unique. There were priests that came, there were kings that served, but here you have a priestly king whose office continues forever. This is the anchor for your soul, beloved. The forerunner on your behalf, who now, right now, at this very moment, mediates on your behalf forever as a king of peace. What what great encouragement. What greater could you have? Here I would just draw your attention over to the next chapter, and we'll elaborate on this later, but just look at the text in verse 23 of chapter 7. This is the direct point he's going to drive and get us to. The point in which you should walk away with more than anything else. In verse 23 of chapter 7, the former priests were many in number. They were many in number because they were prevented by death in continuing their office, right? They lived, they served, they died. What's the distinction in Christ? Verse 24, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So what good is that, that he continues forever? Here's why it's good. Consequently, verse 25, that's the conclusion. He is able then to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. There's not a moment of time in which Christ is not interceding on the behalf of his beloved. There isn't a moment in time when he forgets to come to work and serve. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. He's gone. And the reason that you can have a strong and sure faith and hope, the reason you can endure to the end is because you have a mediator who is Christ the Lord mediating on your behalf, not temporally, but eternally. Forever. This message by the preacher of Hebrews is intended to bring you great encouragement. In times of great turmoil, the call is to remember the very anchor of your soul. An anchor that is steadfast and sure 
in the very innermost heaven of God. When you think it's impossible for you to make it through a particular day and weighed down by whatever burdens might come your way, and and they are there, they exist. We understand that. But you also should understand that Christ is a forerunner on your behalf. And he's already made it. And because he's made it, you will too. And remember, thirdly, that we do have a mediator between God and man. It is Jesus, our great high priest, who lives forever. Let us pray. I do pray, Father, that we would be given strong encouragement and assurance not in of ourselves, but in Jesus Christ, our Lord. May the beauty of all that he is, all that he has done, all that he has promised to do, be that which keeps us sure, steadfast, and and always enduring into the end. I pray by your strength and power, that you would give us a great assurance in that steadfast hope that we have in Christ our Lord. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, take a moment now for you privately to think on these things. If you've examined your own heart and found that you're not in Christ, he'll take you. Come to him now. Not to me. Come to him. Take a moment privately, confess your sin, and he will hear. If you're in Christ and you need assurance, look to me, look to him. In the words that he's spoken to you today, take a moment privately where you're at to think on these things. Satan might buffet us, trials might come, but I pray that we would indeed have a blessed assurance, an assurance that Christ has regarded our helpless estate and has shed his own blood for our soul. So whatever our lot might be, I pray, Father, that truly from the the heart, we would say it's well with our soul. That we would have truly a blessed assurance in Christ, 
in Christ alone. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I'll stand and turn to 156. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. 156 in our hymnals. So the Apostle Paul is my source for our benediction tonight. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in this, against the schemes of the, de- the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Gracious Father, we just pray that you would help us to stand firm, Lord, as we see the evil all around us encroaching upon uh, those who are not standing and who are not aware of the present evil that surrounds us. Father, we just pray that you'd help us to take on the whole armor of God and strengthen ourselves. Lord, we pray now as we go to the fellowship hall that you would bless our fellowship time and bless the food and all those who have prepared it and strengthen our bodies with it. If we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.